Thank you, Joe. Um, good morning, Grace and Truth Bible Church. It's good to see you all this morning. We, my wife and I, were thankful and happy to be here, just to have the opportunity to be here with you all this morning, and um, it's a, it's a blessing in and of itself. Uh, thank you, Joseph, again. Um, now, um, this morning, I, I, uh, we're going to be talking about the blessings that it is to, to read, to med- meditate, to understand, and to live the Word of God. Um, and so, I trust that the Lord would. Um, well, it's my confidence that the Lord would. He is. Um, he uses. He will use His Word to edify our lives this this morning. But before we do that, why don't you um, join me in prayer and asking the Lord to help us to. Uh, understand his word this morning. Let's bow our heads. Our Father, what a what a blessing you have given us to be able to just have fellowship with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the opportunity we have to gather in this place, and uh, we've we've come uh, with the desire to be taught. Um, by you through the teaching of your word and I ask that you uh, may help us to understand it uh, because we we recognize our minds are feeble and tainted with sin and but we also recognize that the Holy Spirit uses your word to sanctify and strengthen and comfort us with it and so we ask that you may be honored and glorified through the teaching of your word and uh we thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, the title of this, uh, of our sermon or study this morning is The Blessings That Come, The Blessings to Meditate on the Word of God. Um, and so by way of introduction to our subject this morning, I'd like to ask you a question. And the question is, how can you and I find joy and contentment in God? Or maybe a slightly better way to ask this question is, how do you find joy and contentment in God? How do you find joy and contentment in God? Now thinking about this, I believe that the early church uh, sets an example to all of us of how they found joy and contentment in God. And so in Acts chapter 2, Verses 41 through 47, you don't have to go there. You can just, if you're taking notes, you can write that down. But what we find there is one of the best representations of the early church. And so in it, we see several marks that characterized the devotion of this faithful church. And the results that flow out of that devotion were exhibited in their own lives. And so I like how one commentator puts it, and I quote, they experience a sense of holy awe as they witness the miraculous being performed by the apostles. You can read that in Acts 2.43. Their congregation was also characterized by sacrificial sharing and several generosity. They also experienced supernatural joy. They, the generosity of their heartfelt love for one another produced an uncontainable gladness that erupted in praise to God and impacted the, the unbelievers around it around them who responded fairly to the irrefutable transformation and selfless virtues they observed in the lives of these believers. End of quote. 
And so the question, after we have heard that, that comes to my mind and perhaps in yours, is, well, what were the marks that characterized the devotion of this faithful church that caused or produced this sense of holy awe and joy and gladness that, inter- that erupted in praise to God? In other words, how did they find such joy and contentment in God? And so as we stated a few moments ago, there are or there were several marks that characterized their devotion that resulted in joy and contentment in God. So what was one of those marks that characterized the devotion of the early church? The answer to that is that it was their devotion to the word of God. It was their devotion to the word of God. Acts 2.40 says that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. This was one of the keys to their happiness. This was one of the keys to their joy and their contentment in God. The Word of God is what produced such a blessedness in their lives. And so for the remainder of our time this morning, we're going to be focusing on the blessedness of our devotion to the Word of God. But to show that this was not just new or unique to the early church, per se, the the church of the New Testament, we're going to be studying a passage in the Old Testament that talks about this. So I'd like you to um, like to ask you to open your Bibles in the book of Psalms. Psalm one. The book of Psalms, Psalm one. We're gonna be going we're gonna be reading and studying all six verses. It's just a very short psalm. We're gonna go ahead and Read all of it. Verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not rise in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Will perish. Now, Psalm obviously focuses on the blessings of meditating on the Word of God, which results in joy and contentment in the life of the righteous, which I would basically say in the lives of believers as well. And so Psalm 1 teaches us two essential truths 
of how the righteous man finds joy and contentment in God and calls you and I to do the same. Number one, meditating and living God's Word. We're going to be looking at that in verses 1 through 3. And number two, seeking and trusting in God's favor. And we're going to be seeing that in verses verses 4 through 6. Again, two essential truths of how the righteous man finds joy and contentment in God and calls you and I to do the same. Meditating and living God's word. And two, seeking and trusting in God's favor. But before we dive into our passage, let's consider a few things about the book of Psalms that I think will help us understand Psalm 1 and its intended meaning. First, let's keep in mind that the Psalms were written by different authors in different times, in different time periods in the history of the nation of Israel. And so the Psalms were not history books, although they may contain history uh, data. They were not epistles, but they were songs. They were hymns, community laments, or the songs or laments of an individual. The entire book of Psalms it's a collection of, of songs and hymns compiled into a song book. And this was the handbook of the nation of Israel. Now, I also like, to, I'd like you to know that they, there are different types of psalms. For example, there are the psalms of praise, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of wisdom, and Torah psalms. Psalm 1 is an example of a wisdom psalm. Why? Because of its content. Because it focuses on the Torah. It it could also be considered a Torah psalm. Now this is important to keep in mind because the psalms of wisdom were written to provide instruction as to God's will. The Psalms of Wisdom were written to provide instruction as to God's will. And so in thinking about the type of instruction that the psalmist provided in Psalm 1, we see that he provided instruction about the blessed life of the righteous and about the blessings that come to those who meditate according to the Word of God, or as the psalmist puts it, to those who delight and meditate in the law of Yahweh. Now the way in which the writer of Psalm provides this teaching and instruction about the blessed life of the righteous is by using the genre's format. And so since the Psalms are poetic in nature, the psalmist uses this poetic language to make logical parallelisms between two types of people and their different lifestyles. And who were these types of people? Number one, the righteous. And number two, the unrighteous. And so, in those logical parallelisms, the psalmist will make or make sharp, sharp contrast between these two types of persons with regards to their moral uh, value system and with regards to what they devote themselves to. So having said that, I think at this point we're ready to dive into our passage. So let's go ahead and read verse 1. 
And here's also where we're going to find our first essential truth of how the righteous man finds joy and contentment in God and calls you and I to do the same. Namely, meditating and living God's Word. So let's read verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. So the first thing that the psalmist states in verse 1 is the phrase, How blessed is the man. That's the first thing that he, that he mentions, that he states in verse 1. And if you're like me, the first question that comes to my mind is, who is the psalmist referring to? Who is this blessed man? Well, in the context of the entire book of Psalms, we find out that the, he is referring to the righteous, the people of God, to those who are the recipient of God's divine favor. And we say this because of the expression because the expression of how the blessed of this this expression how blessed is the man is the same expression as a matter of fact that David used in another psalm to speak of those who receive forgiveness of sin. And we'll see an example of this in Psalm thirty two one. And so I I'd like to ask you to go there for a moment. Psalm thirty two one. Psalm 32.1 And look at how verse 1 begins. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account and whose spirit there is there is no deceit. Now also David uses again this expression in, of, the, of how blessed is the man. In another psalm, in, in Psalm 40, um, verse 4. You don't have to go there if you, don't, if you don't want to. But this is what it says. How blessed is the man who has made Yahweh his trust. And has not turned to the proud nor to those who stray into falsehood. So what is the psalmist saying with that phrase, how blessed is a man? In short, how blessed is the man that, that we find there in, in Psalm 1 is referring to the righteous man. To believers in general. And you say, well, brother, I think that's... To the righteous man, perhaps. But to believers, that's quite a stretch for me, you might ask. Why do we say that it refers to believers as well? Well, we say this for the following reasons. Notice that the word blessedness, or blessed there, back in Psalm 1. Blessed. The word blessed literally means happy. It means happy. 
And this term is referring to the joyful spiritual condition of those who are right with God. And the pleasure and satisfaction that is derived from that. Happy is a man. I like how one commentator puts it. And he says, and I quote, Happy is a man who who finds his pleasure and satisfaction in the fact that they have been made right with God. End of quote. Now, not only that, not only that, but the psalmist is also saying, Happy is the man that does not do the things that he's well, that he's about to say in the following verses. And what are those things? These are different actions that he mentions here. First, he says, Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of what? Of the wicked. Well, what does it mean that he doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked? You might ask. The idea here is that the psalmist is painting a vivid picture of a man who does not take the counsel of the wicked. And the wicked is a term that refers literally to a person who is guilty of crime. This is the type of person that we're dealing with here. The wicked. And so the psalmist is saying, happy is the man who does not follow the idealisms or the moral values of unrighteous men, of ungodly people, nor does he fellowship with them. In, today, in today's terms, this would mean, happy is the man who avoids the morality of the world. And so with that, this truth also calls you and I to do the same, doesn't it? If you are the recipient of God's favor, who enjoys of a right, under, right standing with God, and one who, who wants to enjoy of the pleasure of satisf- and, and satisfaction that is derived from that relationship, then you are called not to follow and embrace the morality of the world either. Why? Because this is not the location where you find your joy and contentment in God. The joy and contentment of the righteous is found somewhere else. We're going to be, we're going to find out where his joy and contentment is located in a few moments. But let's keep reading what the passage says. Secondly, he says, the psalmist says, Happy is the man who does not stand in the path of sinners. And with that, the psalmist is basically saying that the righteous man does not live or embraces the lifestyle of those who ignorantly or intentionally fail to obey God's word. Or to put it in a different way, happy is the man who does not live like the world. Which world? The same world who hates the word of God and loves its, and loves its sin. Now third, the third statement that psalmist says is, well, happy is the man that does not sit in the seat of scoffers. A better translation for the word scoffers could be the word mockers. 
And I think this translation helps us better understand the idea that the Solomon is conveying here. Because with that word, as one commentator puts it, uh, says, the term, refer, the term that he's referring here is our those the, the mockers are those who ridicule the righteous and try to destroy their integrity. Mockers are people that are vicious in their words, often using double meaning meanings and cun, cutting towns towns. They are an abomination, as Proverbs four twenty four nine identifies them. End of quote. So when the psalmist says happy is the man that does not sit in a seat of scoffers he is presenting a man who does not participate in the mockery of mockers who ridicule the righteous who love God's word he does not identify with them nor would he want to be identified with them either Now, now that he's talked about the psalm, now that the psalmist has talked about the things that the righteous man does not do, or the things that, that he shouldn't do, in verse 2, the psalmist then presents the things that the righteous man does do, or that delights, the things that he delights himself in, himself in. In other words, the place where the righteous finds his joy, his happiness. Verse 2, it says, But his delight is in the law law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He meditates day and night. The joy, the delight of the righteous is in the law of Yahweh. His delight is is in doing what the wicked, the sinner, the mocker does not do, which is to take pleasure in the law of Yahweh and the law of the Lord. And the law of the Lord here refers, it refers not only to the Ten Commandments, but to the entirety of the counsel of God's Word. And there is where he finds his joy and contentment in God. But how... How exactly does he do this? How, how, how exactly does he find joy and contentment in God and in, in his law, you might ask? Well, the verse goes on to say, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is a man who doesn't just read reads God's word superficially. Or a man who reads his Bible so he can just scratch that off from his list of things for the day. No. This is a man who truly seeks to understand the Word of God. And once he understands it, he doesn't stop there. But seeks to live according to it. This is exactly the idea behind his birth. To meditate. Once again, I like how one commentator illustrates this. 
meditation when talking about med- meditation what are we talking about are we talking about the type of meditation that we that we that people who who, who like yoga perhaps do and I don't have anything against that that's a different topic or perhaps I might now that I think about it I think I do but meditation what are we talking about with meditation meditation involves prolonged thought of po- or pondering the American figure of speech for meditating is chewing on a thought some have also likened it to the rumination process of a cow's four stomach digestive system and a vivid picture comes from a coffee percolator the water goes up a small tube and drains down through the coffee grounds and after enough cycles the flavor of the coffee beans has been transferred to the water which is then called coffee and so it is that Christians need to cycle their thoughts through the grounds of God's word until they start until they start to think like God and then act Godly. End of quote. And I think this is a great illustration, right? Of what the psalmist is saying here. I would just simply add what the rest of the passage says, which is the reality that the righteous doesn't only do this for a moment, but that he meditates day and night. He does this constantly. In other words, this is what he loves doing. And this is, isn't this what Christians also should also love? Yes. This is how the righteous finds joy and contentment in God. In his meditation on the word of God. And and doing this would also prevent him from being caught up in the ideas of the world. So how does a righteous man find joy and contentment in God? He does this by meditating and living God's word. And this passage instructs you instructs you and I to do the same. If you and I are to participate in the blessings of meditating on the Word of God, then we are to do what the passage says also. Namely, to meditate on it, to understand it, to find our happiness and our joy in understanding and living God's Word in our lives. That's what we're, we're called to do. Verse 3 says, moving on to to verse 3. So, the psalmist doesn't end end there. He doesn't end his instruction with those statements that we just read in, in those two verses. But he also wants his readers to have a vivid, a unique picture in their minds about the man who loves to meditate on God's Word. So, he provides an illustration 
And in that illustration, we're also going to see the effect that the Word of God has in the life of those who meditate on God's Word. And he likens then, he will likens the righteous man who meditates on God's Word to a tree. So verse 3 says, He will be, but, and he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit and its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. He prospers. And so with that illustration, the psalmist describes three effects that the Word of God will have on those who meditate on it and live according to it. Number one, he says that the tree which represents the righteous man will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. And so what is the, the psalmist emphasizing by picturing a tree right next to the stream, to streams of water? Why is he picturing and putting a vivid image of a tree right next to streams of water? And the answer to that is that he's simply emphasizing the spiritual impact of the Word of God in the lives of those who meditate on it and live according to it. Again, here I quote another commentator who describes this illustration. He says, quote, If the tree represents the individual, then the water represents the Word of God. For as the water makes the tree grow, the Word causes the person to grow spiritually. End of quote. Now, moving on. Secondly, the psalmist says that all of that, how the water provides life, all of that makes the tree would makes makes the tree to yield its fruit and to do it in its season, and that its leaf does not wither. In other words, if a tree is alive and being water, it will show the proper growth, and likewise, if True believers are in the Word. They will produce the fruits of righteousness as well. Notice that the reason the tree bears fruit and it's constantly producing fruit, it's because he's being provided constantly with irrigation of water. And this also reminds us of our need to meditate on the Word of God. If there is fruit, if there is to be fruit of righteousness in our own lives as well. Now, when I was thinking about that, I also thought about another passage um, of the New Testament that basically where we're commanded to do this. In Colossians 3.16, it says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms hymns and spiritual songs singing with, with thankfulness in our in your hearts to God
And so to us, what do we do with this? We're reminded of how needed we are of the Word of God in our lives. And we need this if we are to bear fruit in our lives. Number three, the psalmist goes on to say, well, not only bearing fruit, but flourishing. Being vigorously alive spiritually. This is, what, this is the reason he finishes verse 3 by saying that its leaf does not wither. And that it doesn't wither because it doesn't lose and it doesn't lose its moisture. And it doesn't lose its vitality. And the reason why it doesn't lose its vitality is for this reason. It's because of God or the water is constantly in it. And he won't decay. But the opposite, whatever he does, he prospers. And here the psalmist finishes verse 3 in a masterful way. And I want you to notice that. He finishes verse 3 in a masterful way because with all that he has said in verses 3 and 4, while he was describing the effects of the Word of God in those who meditate on it and live according to it, he also described everything that the wicked does not have because he does not love the Word of God, because he doesn't delight himself in it, nor submits to it. So verse 4, he basically says all of this with one little phrase, which is, the wicked are not so. The wicked are not so. Meaning that the wicked, it's like a tree, sure, but with the absence of water. The absence of the, of the water of the Word. In other words, he doesn't have life, neither fruit nor the life that only the righteous have. And here's where the rest of Psalm 1 teaches us the second essential truth of how the righteous man finds joy and contentment in God and calls you and I to do the same. Namely, by seeking and trusting God's favor. Well, we're going to be looking at that in verses 4 through, through 6. And so, verse 4 says, The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away, therefore the wicked will not will not rise in judgment in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now if you if you are thinking, well, Peter is probably getting a little too late in your barely point one, and now we're barely jumping Moving on to verse uh, point two. Don't worry about it. We'll, it's not going to take that long. The second point won't be as long as the first. Why? Well, mainly because the psalmist will simply make a contrast between everything that he has said about the righteous and then he will contrast that with the life of the wicked. Now, this is the reason why the second half of verse four says, but they, meaning the wicked, are like chaff. And with the word chaff, he describes 
Meaning the, the psalmist is describing the spiritual condition of the wicked. For those of us who are not really familiar with chaff or what, what, what that is like, chaff is the lifeless, dried husk of a seed that gets separated from the seed by winnowing or threshing. Chaff is the lifeless, dried husk of a seed that gets separated from the seed by winnowing or threshing. And so, then the psalmist finishes the verse by saying, which the wind drives away. Talking about the chaff. And so with that description, the wicked, with that description of the wicked, we could not help but to think of the words of John the Baptist in Matthew 3.12, which talks about the future judgment of the wicked when he says, the axe is already laid up at the root, at the root of the trees, therefore, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, in the context of Matthew three twelve, John was speaking of the Pharisees and Sadducees. These were people who pretended to be good and religious on the outside, but were spiritually dead on the inside. And that kind of gives you the idea um, of also of how the, the wicked is described as chaff. Now to the righteous, this should have been a reminder about the worthless and momentary momentary life of those who reject the Word of God. But this would also would have had an encouraging effect on the righteous to not get discouraged whenever he's being tempted to walk in the path of the wicked by following their moral values, acting on their sinful ways, or participating in the mockery of the Word of God. Especially as he sees the wicked prospers, prospering in the mundane things of the world. Because, think about it. When do people begin to, be, when do people begin to compromise God's Word? And stop meditating on it. Meditating on it. When does that happen? I think whenever they're tempted to, to, to live like the wicked. Thinking that they might find some type of happiness. Or thinking that they might be missing out on life if they don't embrace the morality. The lifestyles of sinners. The culture. And all the rest. That's when I think the temptation comes to just stop meditating on the Word of God. However, the psalmist reminds the readers that the life of the wicked is but a momentary one, and then he will be judged by Yahweh, whose law he is rejected, whose law he's transgressed and mocked. And so for this reason, in verse 5, the psalmist says, Therefore the wicked will not rise in the judgment, for nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, or nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The ways of the unrighteous man, his deeds, his life, will not be ultimately approved 
by God, nor will be nor will he be able to remain or be part of the fellowship of the righteous either. But they will be judged because well they never repented of their sinful ways. And verse and then verse six, the psalmist says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked will perish. On the other hand, unlike the 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 wicked, the Lord, however, knows the way of the righteous. And this is this is this is an amazing statement that the psalmist is saying here about the righteous, that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. I like what one commentator says about this, and I quote, Here, the concept of being known by name is parallel to having found favor in the sight of God. Of course, God knows every individual by name in the literal sense because He's omniscient. But in in this sense, God's knowing one by name is synonymous with His with his having graced him or her with favor. End of quote. The fact that the Lord knows the righteous speaks of special and intimate relationship that he has with his people. It refers to the special care that God has for them, that he protects them from perishing. I mean, isn't that a reminder of the type of blessing that God's people has? It is. And this should be the reason the righteous man finds joy and contentment in God by trusting in God's favor, by trusting in His care for them. He finds joy and contentment in God by being known by Him. Even though He might not be known in the world. Even though He's not known by the wicked. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters, may, may the Lord help us not to abandon nor neglect His Word hoping to find joy, happiness, not in the morality or, or, or lifestyle of a sinful world, but in meditating on His Word and living according to it. And like the early church in the book of Acts, let this be one of the marks that characterizes the devotion of grace and truth Bible church as well. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, what an encouragement we received through Your Word. Thank You for giving us the opportunity to be reminded of how of how much we need Your Word. We all have failed at times. 
to meditate on it. But we ask that you would help us to delight. That when we look at our Bibles, we don't see a boring thing, but that we might see it as the place where we are going to find joy and contentment in you. But that might be the engine that pushes us, that encourages us to open the Word of God with the hope. Not so that we can just crush that off from our to-do list for the day, but because we need You. Because we want to know You in Your Word because we understand that that's what the Holy Spirit uses to sanctify us, to comfort us, to renew us, to renew our minds. Help us, Lord, to delight and meditate in Your Word in the way that Psalm 1 teaches us to do so that we may bear fruit of righteousness in our lives. Even, Lord, as we think about all the things and the difficult times that the church is going through, let us be reminded that we need You. That we need to be anchored on the promises and the hope of the Gospel. That we take comfort in You. That even the fact that we prayed and get on our knees is because we have our confidence in You. And we want to pray, we, in a especially for, for Vecchi and, and for the family of church members who have lost, lost family members. Lord, we would ask that You would remind, it, remind them of Your, of the hope of the Gospel even in the midst of pain and suffering. Please, Lord. We ask these things in your name. Amen.